we wanted to tell the story of someone who's so obsessed with what he couldn't see um, that he forgot the, the, the people around him that he could hold. It was almost a cautionary tale for ourselves. Like, you know, go off on an adventure, but don't lose sight, um, you know, of, of the people. Don't lose connection. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Many horror fans have been known to describe their favorite movies as underrated. Typically, it describes a movie that took time to find an audience, was well received by an audience and or critics, but didn't find financial success, or went underseen because of a bungled release by a studio or distributor. Films like John Carpenter's The Thing, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, The Exorcist 3, The Frighteners, and Trick or Treat. All examples of films that didn't perform when they were first released, but found a following over time. Primarily for the simple reason that they are all damn good movies that deserved better. Let's add another underseen gem to the list of greats that deserve more attention than they received. Released in 2010, Yellow Book Road is a nightmare-inducing, reality-shattering descent into madness. Part Blair Witch, part Wizard of Oz, all relentlessly terrifying. Written directed by team Andy Bitten and Jesse Holland, the film came out to strong reactions from audiences and critics, but despite a theatrical release, came and went with little fanfare. And yet, as more and more people stumbled upon it over time and word of mouth continued to grow with genre fans, the film has received a much-deserved re-evaluation. Much like the titular path in the film's title, this movie has many dark secrets that once unearthed are impossible to forget. Our guest in this episode is filmmaker Andy Mitten. Andy and I discuss his background in theater growing up in Massachusetts, the way his love of horror and theater found a natural rhythm, why oftentimes a genre filmmaker's influences aren't necessarily horror films, a recurring theme for Spill Your Guts listeners, and his haunting new pandemic horror film, The Harbinger. Andy is a visionary filmmaker with a tremendous eye for detail and a finely tuned skill for finding the truth in his characters and in the actress portraying them. That's one of the things that gives Andy's work such resonance. Characters in his films never do what the plot requires of them, and you will not find yourself yelling at the screen over their idiotic decision-making. It's clear that Andy loves and respects his audience and the stories he is telling. So, let's follow the yellow brick road into the Stygian Abyss with Andy Mitten. Hey Andy, Kevin, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I'm uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. It's uh, it's funny because I was mentioning this to you a bit before we started recording, but Yellow Brick Road is a movie that uh, I saw uh, like a, when I, around the time it first came out. A friend of mine who was a festival programmer was had this had a screener of the film. Um, and he said to me, uh, you, you, you've got to you've got to see this movie. It's really scary. And I was like, nah, nothing's scary anymore. Like, you know, I see movies that I think are scary, but nothing 
I'm pretty hardened at this point. I watch a lot of horror movies for what I do and just because I, I love horror movies. And that movie got right under my skin. So I was going around for the longest time telling me, you got to see this movie. If you want to see a legit scary movie... And people were like, how do I find it? And nobody could find it. And I was like so curious, sort of, you know, did that movie have like a difficult distribution path or something? Like why was that the case when it first came out that it was hard for people to track down? I don't know. I mean, it shouldn't have been. It was, a, it was a, I, as I remember, it was like on Amazon and stuff. They, they, it, it was like this partnership between uh, Bloody Disgusting and AMC Theaters so they did like a 30 city thing when it first came out. It was actually more like we were terrified because we thought we were making this art house movie. And they're like, we're going to put it in AMC theaters in 30 cities. And we're like, oh, no, we're going to get completely reamed. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, after that, it, 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 I mean, I won't say it was the best cared for thing. I was, you know, we only got the DVD. It never quite looked right on the transfer. So um I, it did fly under the radar, but it kind of likes, I don't know, it was the kind of movie that liked living in that secret <laughs> under the radar. I mean, of. that's part of the fun of it, yeah. It was yeah. like, I would tell people and they'd have to, maybe it was also like in Canada, maybe it's release was a bit hard, like harder yeah. to get than it was in the States. It might have been that. Um, because I just remember people sort of had to kind of hunt for it and I would inevitably, like once I got a hold of it, I would invite people over and show it to them and, uh, you know, upset them and, um um, <laughs> um what, but we'll get we'll get right into yellow brick road uh, soon enough i wanted to sort of just get a bit more just about you know your your early andy years like where you sort of grew up and how your love of film developed so you were telling me that you uh, grew up in new york right actually south of boston i'm currently in new york oh boston right you're in new york yeah, now. yeah. Okay, I, I i grew up in a uh, uh marshfield massachusetts it's pretty near plymouth uh, on the South Shore of Massachusetts, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I I wanted to be a writer really ever since I can remember, probably three, four years old. I, I didn't know how it would manifest, but um, I've always had that bug, and uh, I don't, you know, happy, pretty happy, regular suburban childhood, and then fell into found my crowd in the theater department, um, and or the drama club, I guess back then I was a drama nerd. <laughs> and uh, found my crew and, and, you know, found my permission to be a, a nerd and, and love all the things I loved. And um, so I, I, I always loved horror movies. Uh, I was begging my mom for like to buy me Stephen King books when I was probably eight, nine years old and um, finally wore her down. So, you know, which led to me like reading the dark half at like age 10 when you really <laughs> shouldn't be reading the dark half. Um, but you know, so it was theater and horror and, and, you know, theater is what took me, you know, th through college. I went to Middlebury college. I make movies with a lot of the people I went there with, um, little school in Vermont. Uh, people have seen Witch in the Window. It's right there. Um, and from there went to Los Angeles and, uh, started a theater company with Clark Freeman, who, who is in a lot of my movies and produces them. And, uh, we did theater for a lot of years and, always were scheming the plan of sort of bringing the sensibilities we learned uh with you know with the slightly different priorities of theater you know into into horror movies and 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 maybe having you know our own angle on things and yellow brick road was the thing we built to be the sort of i mean it's more than a movie for all of us who did it it's a life event <laughs> that comes with you know a, a 
true adventure and PTSD and all sorts <laughs> of craziness. Um, but it did, it changed, you know, it, 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 it launched, everything kind of came from there. And since then it's been indie horror filmmaking with some off-roads into musical theater, which I also work in. And who were kind of your first, you know, influences in, from a literary standpoint? You said King. Who who were some of the other folks that you were reading when you were younger? Um, I read, I mean, I read some what was popular at the time. I certainly went read some like Dean Koontz. Um, yeah. There's a couple of those that still resonate. Uh, I read John Saul, um, yeah. Peter Straub. Um, the, those were those were. I mean, I I went back to Edgar Allan Poe. I like would dip into that stuff, but I I was never patient enough for for <laughs> yeah. for the classics. <laughs> like in sort Lovecraft of all sense, was like, what is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is disappointing to some people that that you know someone who made Yellow Brick Road was not really a Lovecraft expert, <laughs> but I was. I never was. I was. Just, I remember re- picking up Lovecraft when I was younger and being like, "Oh God, this is so boring." And I mean, I, I appreciate. I I love Lovecraft now, but yes. when I was younger, it did not connect with me. I I mean, I don't think it's supposed to connect with kids. Though. Exactly <laughs> I don't think right. That's the yeah. intended demographic for Lovecraft. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it's funny too because I think you know, for so many people in and around our age. It, it's it's all it's almost always king you know what i mean it's like there's a reason he's just you know this towering uh, just author and, and, and his presence is so felt in so many people's work i mean you watch so many people's work around a certain age and you see that king influence both in in writers and in filmmakers what was the first sort of king book that really dialed you into stephen king the Shining was the one that had me just under the covers, like with a flashlight at two a.m. You know, with that scene where he goes into the room with the, you know, with the bathtub, and and um, it's as scary as that is in the movie. You know, in in the book, I mean, she's never beautiful in the book; she's horrible from from the get go. But the tension of that was something I had never felt. I was completely terrified, um, and I was very much sucked in from that point. And I I went right into I think I went right into the stand after that which sort of you know blew my mind um so and is, it, and is a serious commitment as a, it's exactly it, <laughs> yeah. yes it feels yeah. like a, yeah it was like my first marathon yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i, I it's funny what was yours pet cemetery totally pet yeah. cemetery scared the shit out of me it was like i read that book and i remember kind of you know, as I was reading it, I, I knew it was upsetting me in a way that stopped being fun and was just upsetting me, but I couldn't stop. And so it's the first time I remember at a young age, like, it's sort of having that encounter with horror where, you know, I'd seen Freddy and stuff like that. And that was still, that felt safe to me because it was fun. And yeah. Jason, you know, those things, they were scary, but they were fun. But Pet Cemetery just took no prisoners. You know, it was, it was harsh and it was... um you know, and I think just being a kid, it's about a family, you know, it felt relatable. The setting wasn't something I couldn't relate to because I grew up in a suburb um, that, that was pretty woodsy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't grow up in, you know, Chicago or something. So that book just really did me in. And um, and then I saw the film and that didn't help. I thought the film was terrifying. That movie scared the hell out of me. So definitely, yeah, it was funny because even watching Yellow Brick Road, when they come to that kind of... Um, sort of uh, blockade you know all i thought of was the one in the deadfall yeah it's, pur- that's, it's I, on purpose that for sure the deadfall was important to me granted i saw the movie before i read the book but yeah the movie is 
I mean, the movie's great. It has its issues. Like, you know, I, I think it has a, a an actor at the center who you don't quite... He's not the ultimate, you know, nothing against Dale Midkiff. I, I'm sure he's a wonderful actor now. But, like, I was that's the only thing lacking when I go and look back. But it has all the intangibles, you know, particularly yeah. Zelda. Zelda is so oh scary. God. So scary. It's yeah. so brilliant to cast. I think she cast, like, a like a 17-year-old boy, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So good. I always thought, you know, um, Chris Alexander, I don't know if you know Chris, but uh, he's a works in horror. He used to be the editor of Fango, and, and he and I were talking about Pet Cemetery and how how essential to that film Fred Gwynn's performance is. You know, that he oh. brings this sense of history to it, this sense of that old-timey quality that, you know, it gets, it's been spoofed in, like, things like South Park and stuff, I think, because it, it stayed with so many people of a certain age that saw that film. Uh, it's such an, you know, because John Lithgow, is, was, who was a wonderful actor and was great in the remake, but it's that role now that will forever be fred gwynn's role you know it's so absolutely no there's nothing john i like john lithgow was like i'm not even doing maine he's just i'm yeah. just gonna do john lithgow but yeah. like that maine is such a is such a deep successful part of that first film yeah she just, oh she yeah all the way don't go on the road like that whole like kinda, <laughs> yeah it's the best yeah and there's a lot of great sort of one-liners that i mean and it's it's funny too because i always like to ask people sort of what the first film they was because a lot of filmmakers in genre in the genre can think of horror movies they loved, whether it's Universal Monsters or whatever it is. But I'm always curious, like, what the first film was that you remember that really, like, scared you, that affected you in that way, where where it wasn't just fun, where you were actually afraid. I mean, it probably was Pet Cemetery for me, yeah. um, which is now a redundant answer since we've just talked about it. But it was... there are different levels right I also went seeking out the exorcist at a very young age because that was that was like I wanted to go to like the unholy place um and I wanted to know what that was um and that got me even before I could understand it that got me really really badly and I was very hyped up for it too which probably didn't help um (laughs) and that's probably still my favorite film like in any genre I think yeah I think it's just uh, just about perfect um so the, yeah those two movies and, and even the fun stuff would you know would scare me i didn't find the fun in nightmare on elm street for too long not because the first just, one not the no first one. <laughs> well i went i went to a fairground when i was like six and they had one of those games where there's a wall of posters and they, you can throw the dart and whichever poster the dart lands on you get to take home okay. from the fair so i i was aiming for the freddy poster being ambitious and it's just his face was the whole poster and i got it it's the first time i ever accurately threw a dart in my life and i wound up with this with this freddy poster you know on my closet wall and since i had worked hard for it i didn't want to take it down but i stared at it every night like in the glow of the nightlight there was freddy looking back and and i built this huge fear of him before i even saw the movies yeah i the the sort of slasher mainstay for me that scared me was chucky i saw (laughs) chucky when i was you know young i don't know the first one came out in gosh i don't know 82 or something like that early yeah. 80s and you know i still had a lot of toys around me at that time and all of a sudden i would you know find myself looking at them and be like you're going in the closet like just <laughs> you know chucky kind of yeah uh, michael myers was the other one that scared freak man i michael just always 
he seemed harsher to me, in, in, and I think it's also a testament to to Carpenter as a director. But but there was something about Michael Myers, where whereas Jason, it was kind of all about how creative the kills were, and Freddy became more and more of sort of the Johnny Carson of slasher characters. He was I loved the dream stuff and all that stuff was amazing. But Michael was just like that relentless. Was it. It's yeah. relentless, impending, yeah. unavoidable death. Yes. Yeah, and and Donald Pleasance was in those, and I was obsessed with him at a very young age, and still am. So that always was, you know, the thing for me there too. Um, who were the sort of early filmmakers that you, you know, started to first like? It's I'm I'm always curious to hear from people who the who that director was or writer uh, that kind of was the person that first kind of dialed them into like, oh, okay, so this is the craft, and this is how movies get made, and it right. usually starts with a filmmaker that they love. Do you remember who that was for you? Yeah, it was P.T. Anderson for me. It was Boogie Nights. Um, I, I've seen Boogie Nights like probably more than any other movie because I, you know, I would I would watch it and then I would watch it again once it came back out with the commentary, you know, yeah. and, and listening, you know, he's probably on all sorts of cocaine on that commentary, but it's just there's a lot of information <laughs> packed into that commentary. It's yeah, frantic, yeah. Um, but I just ate it up and uh, and yeah, between that and and Tarantino, certainly like Pulp Fiction, I was really into that wave. Um, and, and just got into to studying them. And I think I, probably the third I would put there what that led me to was, was Lumet, um, who is still the top of the mountain for me in terms of just having done Network and Dog Day Afternoon. You know, th those two alone are just, uh, you know, there's not much better. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, I talk to directors on the show all the time, and a lot, I have a lot of friends who are directors. And it, it, I think it surprises people how often genre directors influences are not other genre directors um yeah i think that's changed a bit now a lot of the younger filmmakers now are like it's sam raimi and it's you know all these great genre guys but like you know i think for a lot of people it wasn't necessarily you know, one of the first people i remember sort of obsessing over was oliver stone i remember seeing salvador with james woods yeah and just the rawness of it and the you know just and and then it was funny though at the same time and i that I was like, how can you have a movie this bleak that makes me laugh? And how can that work? And you know, I I go back and look at that movie now, and I and I'm like, why? It's bizarre to me that at like 12 I got those jokes. I shouldn't have. Probably, <laughs> but, um, I think it's Woods's energy too was fun. I've I've always thought James Woods had this great kind of manic energy as an actor that that you know in his great roles he he kind of nailed. But Stone, you know going on to do things like JFK, which I think is an editorial masterpiece. I mean, the editing in that movie is insane. Um, and I've told people that, and they're like, but shouldn't it be, you know, Wes Craven? I was like, oh, I love all those guys. And Carpenter was definitely someone early on that I started to learn a lot from in terms of framing and composition. Like, Carpenter was, you know, one of the best. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's not, you know, it's P.T. Anderson is like, you know, if ever there is a filmmaker, I think of whose movies have such a rhythm to them, a musicality, you know, yes. it's like, yes. It, and the music's changed over time. He's playing different, different music these days. And like, I, I do sort of dream that he'll, he'll do like what Scorsese did with Wolf of Wall Street and pick up the electric guitar again and play a little rock and roll one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny too because Boogie Nights is the movie I'm right there with you. I, I think it's a masterpiece. I love it. I've seen it many, many, many times. 
It was always baffling to me when like uh, Burt Reynolds was like, oh, I didn't like it. I was like, how could you not? He's so good in it. <laughs> like, I know. It's maddening. It really yeah. is. It's like, yeah. I don't know how he could not like it when, when he's that brilliant in it. I mean, it's it brought him so much acclaim. If alone for that, you'd think he'd like it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's his best work. And then he's done a lot of good stuff. Deliverance Same. is right up there. It's one of my favorites. Um. But it's true, the auteurs really weren't... I guess I don't mention directors in horror because I feel like the movies that really stand out weren't necessarily part of a, an auteur-driven thing. Like, I think of Candyman, yeah. and it's not like we say Bernard Rose is, like, you know, a horror giant. He just made this great horror movie. Or, like, Adrian yeah. Lyon made Jacob's Ladder. That's yeah. not what, how we think of Adrian Lyon, but that's one of the great horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, Jacob's Ladder is a funny one to me, too, because when I watch it, now i'm like it just straddles the line of not even being a horror movie it's horrific but it, it has a sensibility that it is not horror as well so it's sort of right on the cusp for me it's of, on the line but it, yeah. it deserves it for me because it does have horror set pieces proper ones yeah. the subway the strobe yeah. light party you yeah. know the, those are those are tried and true horror set pieces sure. that, that burn right in yeah that's like I'm always arguing with people about how why Silence of the Lambs is a horror film. You know, people Absolutely, like, in Seven. Yeah, like there's all these movies yeah. that people are like, oh, it's a thriller. I'm like, no, no, no. That was from a time when you couldn't just say something was a horror movie if you wanted to win Oscars. So right. you called it a thriller. But when you have a cannibal saying, you know, Senator, love the suit, you're in Grand Guignol, Dracula territory at that yes. point. Like, Absolutely. It's, you know, you're far from... And Seven is a good one to bring up. I think that movie... To this day, I'm I'm like, what a uh, an accomplishment that film is! What a, and yeah. so many movies ripped it off after it was made. Yeah, and there's nothing like the dread of that. I mean, the the yeah. you just need it. It's the ultimate. Like, I need a shower after watching it movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So, what was sort of you know, what was the point in your in your life where you decided, okay, you know what, I think I'm going to commit to a career in in you know as a writer or as a filmmaker. Um, I think it was as long as I can remember, I, I, I really? was going to be okay. a storyteller. I was, you know, I, I probably, when I was a teenager, I thought it, it was novels. And then when I found, I was going to say, did you, did you plays. initially think something like a novelist? Yeah. Rather than, yeah. Right. Absolutely. But you know, I, and, and I, I, I thrived at it. Like when I was coming up, like in middle school, like, or whatever, I was writing stories that were good, but I, I, I quickly found it wasn't my, uh, I, I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And, and when I discovered scripts, um, I became addicted to like the margins, the fact that like scripts were a blueprint that had margins and spaces for other artists to come in and fill with their ideas. And then it, 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 writing was suddenly not this completely introverted process. It was actually a plan to engage and to collaborate and uh i really liked the the architecture of that so since then i i you know i haven't looked back i certainly don't write prose um yeah and it's just been yeah i just you know because you obviously i i've come to believe in the the ten thousand hours to some degree with like screenwriting especially you don't want to believe it when you're writing your first scripts but i definitely had to write a lot of them to to, to know what i'm doing yeah yeah it's funny when i look at you know early scripts of some writers there's some writers where i look at their early stuff and i'm like wow they had it so quick it took me so long to figure out how to do this and then you talk to them they're like oh no there's 50 that went in the garbage bin before that one <laughs> right <laughs> like, yes. you know it's like oh okay so i don't have to feel quite as bad about that no, and, and, it's and hard. You know, it, it, 
it is hard. I mean, it's, and it is like, even when you have a writing partner, um, there's still a part of it that you have to do alone. You know, even with a writing partner, you're off on your own brainstorming stuff and you're shooting each other ideas and you're picking up the phone and going, Hey, what about this? But like, you know, it's still a, even with a partner, there's still something insular about the craft of, of screenwriting that, that, you know, it's, I don't know what it's like in the writer's room on like TV shows. I think maybe it's a little different in that context, but sure, I would think so. I have no experience with it, but I don't think I would like it. Do you think you would want to work on a, a, no, no, (laughs) no, no. I, I spent a lot of years in LA, you know, playing the game of trying to convince myself I was into things. I wasn't, um, including like, you know, having the wrong agents or people sending me into, the wrong companies and wanted me to put aliens in every screenplay and, and, uh, and thinking I could do it. I can contort to be the thing that, you know, will, will give me the best path or, or, you know, endear me to the most people. And it, and my muse every time is just like, absolutely not. I'm yeah. It's not going to work. You're going to do yeah. what you do. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I had a similar LA experience. I moved out there. I was going to go do the whole thing and I managed to get a project together and, put together a great cast and uh, had a great DP and we shot kind of this proof of concept thing. And then we go, we're pitching it to studios and the notes were like coming back at me. And I was like, Oh man, it's true. Like they ask you to do the most insane shit to ruin your movie. Like they just want to take everything about it that you think makes it work. And that's all the stuff they want to change. And you're like, what? Like this is like, it was kind of eye opening. And I was like, back to Toronto with me. (laughs) I just, yeah, you know, it's weird because L.A. Like, I don't know if this is your experience with L.A., but I, but I, I always often thought of L.A. for a place that I, I have a lot of friends and there's a lot of people I love that live in L.A. But, but I never felt inspired there. I never felt my most creative while I lived there. It was, it wasn't until I, I came back. Yeah, to get that back again. I hear that. Although I miss the desert inspired me and I liked having the desert so close and I would go out to the desert and just to feel, cause like coming from the East coast, you know, it's like, it's just always felt alien to me. I was there 14 yeah. years and it was always like, this is alien. And, and yeah. I could kind of put myself in a weird, in a weird place. But, um, yeah, I don't, you know, LA, LA was just, there was a community the, especially we were doing theater and the theater community, especially is very disparate. There's no real, you know, there's like, some in North Hollywood and like they're kind of scattered around and they don't communicate. Um, and there was a lack of community in general, but I was just, you know, uh, hermiting away in Santa Monica yeah. the whole time. Like I was like, I was just stay where it's cool on the West side and, um, yeah. you know, have my friends yeah. and it's a good place to be young, but you know, they're yeah, on fire I was there in my, water. So in my twenties and I had a lot of fun and partied and made a lot of friends. And that's yeah. another reason I didn't get anything fucking done is because yeah. <laughs> too busy having fun yeah i mean it's it's great for that but but i think you know uh, for me it was definitely a place where i was like i'm glad i did it you know i'm glad i i I don't regret anything about it but but it it wasn't i knew it wasn't the place i was gonna make a career yeah did you have that feeling when it was time to leave like okay you know it's time to go did it just kind of land that way or it sort of was a natural process i mean we had we had just shot we go on and we go on was like you know it's a very la movie shot like a completely ridiculously over like 40 locations in the city on a tiny budget i'm not yeah, quite sure how we did it locations in that movie <laughs> yeah it's that we way overreached our budget and you know luckily had a great team who helped us pull it off but like it was a it was it was a hard shoot 
Um, and afterwards, I got a gig out of the Kennedy Center in D.C. Um, doing uh, writing songs for a, for a musical out there. And so uh, my soon-to-be wife at that time and I left thinking I would come back just to go to Washington, D.C. And, and um, you know, she was pregnant. And, and then once we were there, we were, you know, it was just this gradual process of, of like a few months later, we kind of looked at each other like, I don't think we're going back. Yeah. Um, and they only, yeah, I just went back one weekend to clean out, you know, 13 years yeah. of life out of my tiny apartment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, right. And yeah, and since then we've been here. But obviously, like you, like I have so many people I love there and uh, who I miss. And especially yeah. because of the last several years have not yeah. been able to go out and, and, and make the proper connections. Well, let, let's sort of um, let's get into Yellow Brick Road then. So, uh, yes. Was Yellow Brick, I know you did some shorts and things like that, but was Yellow Brick Road your first feature? Yes. It was, okay. Um, IMDb is not always on point with this stuff, so I always check that stuff. True. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, I told you a bit about sort of my relationship to the film. I think, for my money, Yellow Brick Road has a, 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 an ominous dread steeping just all through it that just, it, it's one of those movies to me that, like, Two minutes in, you're like, nothing good is going to happen for these people. Like Pet Cemetery, like that's it's that kind of a feeling. So, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 to this day, I think it's one of the, the, in terms of contemporary horror, I think it's one of the scariest contemporary horror films. Um, so I'm excited wow. to sort of pick your brain about it a bit. Um, the first thing I was curious about is like I've seen it quite a few times, but I went back and watched this nice Blu-ray, and it's nice to see it look so pristine and, um, yeah. You know, they did a great job on the transfer. But, uh, um, you know, you, d you did sort of the opening titles that, you, you know, I think of as, as sort of trying to set a... Even though the audience knows this isn't a true story, you're kind of putting it in that ballpark of it feels like the way Texas Chainsaw opens with a, a title crawl or Blair Witch, mm -hmm. you know, where it's kind of like, we know this isn't a real story, but we're kind of in that ballpark of we want you to feel like maybe it, maybe it could have been. Is that Was that sort of the intention there? Yeah, to provide some uh, a sense of authenticity um, to to the, to the foundation. Since we were going to introduce a seeker, right, in Teddy, and someone who's obsessed with this story enough to to you know choose it over everything else, um, to give a hit uh, and and hopefully yeah, plant that seed of dread. I mean, we stumbled across it with some of those pictures in that montage we took of like our crew lying dead in the forest and then there was some stock stuff and and um both of the voices actually in the beginning both the interviewer and the survivor being interviewed are me with oh, my really? voice sort of pitched down yeah good job, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good job. I, I thought it was temp and then it kind of there was something something about it just no we're straight yeah you nailed it that's great um you didn't need John Larroquette or anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we wouldn't have afforded him. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's interesting to talk about sort of that that the character, sort of the seeker. There is a quality of the movie, too, that sort of, you know, there, there is something about this movie that has to do with, like, kind of that thing of obsession. And, you know, you know when you get, when you go after something so single-mindedly, like, you might not like what you find. Like, was that mm -hmm. sort of, you know... Was that underpinning value uh, one of the early things you thought of for this story that you wanted to make a story like that? Or when did that sort of enter the, the narrative of the, of the film? Yeah, I mean, that was probably the second big thought. The first was very simple because um, we were hikers in the canyons in L.A. And, and that was just walking around the woods one day and imagining um, 
this music from from the 30s and and you know the music as ghosts and you know there's the music is an important role in everything i do and uh that was just more of a a sense right a feeling the movie started with a feeling and then the thought behind the structure was very much like a cautionary tale about um it kind of mirrored what we were afraid we were doing like are we going to make this jump and put everything at risk to to enter this crazy business and do it you know with this wild swing of a weird movie and try and be independent um you know we wanted to tell the story of someone who's so obsessed with what he couldn't see um that he forgot the 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 people around him that he could hold it was almost a cautionary tale for ourselves like you know go off on an adventure but don't lose sight um you know of of the people don't lose connection um, don't forget about home yeah don't forget about home right yeah. so yeah drop drop anchor in the things that that you know because the, those ethereal things that you're reaching for may you know may never be within reach um and, and could draw you to a bad place so yeah we knew it would all hinge on his decision to go north um we knew we wanted an ensemble that we would bond rather than break up over the course of the first half of the movie um and then divide them uh, so, you know, being kind of frustrated with seeing, seeing the opposite of that too often. Like it's something that frustrates me in horror movies is like, if you really have confidence in your external conflict and you're a bad guy, why spend all the time breaking down the internal relationships with increasing right. conflict? It doesn't make sense because you want those relationships at their strongest. You want, you know, the love at its strongest when it, when it's tested. Yeah. Um, so th- those are all things that were early in the stew um, before we really started stirring it up. And the movie is definitely, you know, uh, there's a lot of surrealist flourishes to it right from the get-go, you know, when he goes into this place and there's this, it, he can't see the guy through the glass and, you know, um, almost kind of this sort of Lynchian Twilight Zone equality that, you know, between the, the, the old school movie house and... Um, you know, I, for some reason, it just it, it got me thinking of, of things like that, the, of the Twilight Zone and 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 kind of, you know, sort of what the word the term Lynchian is probably used too much. But there is something I'm going to say Lynchy. I'm going to change it. Lynchy about that to me. <laughs> was that was that sort of a tone also you wanted to get in there it was something, you know, not quite real life? Um, I think the word we kept using was uncanny and i think that's right. what goes to lynch is that he i think of him as the master of the uncanny image but when i was in college i took a class on um it was like uh you would horror and film and literature and you would kind of compare like you know frankenstein the book to the to the adaptations and all that and we read this um there's a great essay i think it's freud an essay on the uncanny um that really opened my eyes you know to 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 what that is the thing that you can't even express why it's wrong but it's wrong um and it creeps in and we were i remember in the early communications with the crew when we kind of broken everything down into color palettes and everything else we had a whole section on the uncanny and what that meant to us to start there rather than be impatient and dive right to the obviously horrific thing were you ever like you know i feel like when you're doing something like that um as you're describing that's sort of you know uncanny um, 
you know, the risk can be if you go too far that direction that the characters can become not relatable or seem too out there or, you know, or the scenario can feel too ethereal and too wacky for, for the audience. Like, but this film always finds that line, I think. How did you monitor that to make sure it never kind of crossed over into being too out there or too ethereal or too, you know, uncanny? Um, I think we, we, I mean, part of it was along the way, it just in conversations and, um, in conversations while we were having the script, sort of at every phase, we were really trying to track our best guess at the, the audience, um, uh, investment, but it's hard with an ensemble movie. And there's a reason why I, I we, you know, neither Jesse and I, we haven't made another one because we did leave that movie being like, we really want to be hardwired to someone next time because it right. is, it's a challenge but I think Yellow Brick Road it works largely because of the cast and yeah. there was a there was a real chemistry there there was real fear on set because we did the unreasonable thing and went to the actual place the movie set which is was like on some technical level dumb because we didn't realize at that point you know you can just park your camera on the side of a paved road and point it into the forest and no one knows you're not in the that, middle of it yeah. But no, and instead we're, you know, dragging our steady cam up to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, where there's, you know, more moose than people, no cell phone reception. We were in the seventies. Like we, we really put ourselves there and, and um like literally the fear of losing a crew member to a moose accident became like a primary concern on this set. A so like, moose accident. <laughs> the number of people killed by moose like every year in that area is crazy because if you hit one, wow. they like run beside your car. They look like dinosaurs running beside your car at dawn. And if they get in front of your car, you're done. They go right through yeah. any car. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it, I, we didn't realize before we got there what we'd gotten ourselves Did into. Did you encounter many moose on your journey? Yes. I had to stop really? short a few times of moose. Like, we really felt like we were on the moon. And they're very, in hindsight, they, they're kind of majestic, though, aren't they? When you're, I mean, I mean, like where I live, like you can see them. And anytime I ever encounter them, I'm like, there's something so uh, wild about them. And so they're, it's, it's, they're kind of beautiful yes. animals. I, I find they're them great. Yes, preferably from a few hundred feet away. Yes. Very majestic. The closer you get, the yeah, it it starts other words take over. Uh, when it's right <laughs> in front of the hood of your car, it's a whole other yeah, word. Yeah, that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, all of this energy sort of goes into the movie in a funny way. That that in hindsight, I, I'm I'm glad we were there. It bonded us, um, and the cast was, uh, you know, they were, they weren't like. They had an objective, uh, I think, is why that ensemble is successful to me to some degree, is that like they weren't out in the woods to party. It's not a horror movie filled with young souls, as they usually are, who are just trying to have fun. Like yeah, They have a real, yeah, yeah, they have yeah. a purpose. They have a, a degree of emotional intelligence with one another. They and get they're along. not, you know, of that age. They're not all like 21. They're, you know, right. Are, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a spread. And I, I think certain people, especially like are just holding it down. Like I look at Alex Draper in that movie as Walter who's like giving the, the kind of young Richard Dreyfus vibes. And yeah, um, there's just great. a great, there's a, there's a lot of different, um, there's a good mix of energies. It was just a good, it was a good crew. We got lucky. And I think it's, you know, there's something to be said for location shooting like that. I'm, you know, I shot a, a woodsy horror film and it was, you know, we were on an island that's, and it was so like, it was, it was hell for sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I look at the way that like when the, when the crew and the cast at the end of the day are not going back to their houses in, 
you know, when everybody's just, you're all staying at the same, you know, in this case, we're all staying in this in, in one big ass like cottage. So, you know, you have no choice but to get along and, and work together and, and pull together. And, and luckily, you know, that was what we had, you know, and I, I think, I think it finds its way into the movie. Don't you think? That, it really that does. Energy. Yeah. It really, really does. And I look at, you know, at this, when this Blu-ray came out, they include, there's a feature in there that's sort of a behind the scenes thing. And it's really, you know, it's, it shows a lot of that. And there were things in there that I'd forgotten about. And there's, you know, there's great footage of, of, you know, Rob Eggers, who was our costume designer on Yellow Brick Road, like, you know, who was just a local New Hampshire hire at the time. And now he's Rob Eggers. Yeah. He's done a couple of things, right? A couple of things. Yeah. No big deal. It was funny because I didn't, um, I, I, I found out that he had worked on the film for, I think, Rumorg, the, the cover story on, yeah. on, yeah. on, um, on your new yeah. film. Yeah, I, I didn't know they'd interviewed him until I saw Rumorg. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, what's he going to say? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's so, uh, like, I, I had this, I, I had that, that classic image of like, oh, well, you guys probably went to film school together or something, but <laughs> no. nothing like that. He just was a guy you hired locally. Like that's such a, you know, yeah. I mean, did you, did you stay in touch with him after the shooting? Did you guys get on well or what was sort of? Oh the... yeah. No, he was, it was a lovely working relationship, but, um, you know, no, we haven't, we hadn't stayed. I mean, I quickly became, once I saw the witch, I was like, oh God, I don't even know you know, he probably changed his email address by now, but <laughs> I, I, uh, since Rumorg, I have a good excuse to, to, to thank him for that support. So I'll, I'll, I'll get back in touch with him. But, um, yeah, I just sort of been, um, in awe of the path he's been, he's been yeah. helping to pay for all of us. And he was the costume designer on the film, right? Yep. Jeez. Meticulous, a meticulous costumer, as you might imagine. Um, yeah. but really, really like warm, um, and friendly and, and uh, just a great collaborator. That's awesome. Um, and you know, and the thing that's worth noting is on your work, you're not like the guy who goes in and does one thing. You're like the writer, the editor, you're doing the music. Like you really, you're, you're, you're all, your hands are all over your films. Like, um, is that something that started out, you know, as a cost saving measure or is that something you always wanted to do was handle all those elements? Uh, some combination of those things. I mean, yeah. on Yellow Brick Road, Jesse was lead editor. He had had more experience, and I was over his shoulder, um, and I would do a few scenes on my own. And then I started to take the lead from there. And now editing just feels like kind of my follow through of of the direct. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't beg for a final cut. I just I, I want the first cut, really. I just want to show people what was in my head, and then I'm I'm going to be the first person to fire myself. Um, <laughs> and I think with with the composing, you know, I, I I've probably after Witch in the Window, I said I wouldn't hire myself again because I just have too many heroes. But I it, it was right for the Harbinger. Sometimes I just get the main theme really early, and I have it on set for both of my last films. I have, and and I know that it's going to be supportive. Um, and nothing like John Williams-y, but uh, that will be the first hat I remove um, that I'm, because there's just too many people I'm excited to work with as I hopefully have more resources going forward. Right. But I just try and separate the hats, basically. Like, yeah. what I always say is that, yeah, the director hates the writer, the editor hates the director, and, and those are important facts for me because if I'm just protecting the last version of myself, you know, the director protecting the screenplay or the editor protecting the director, like, I've lost sight um i should be 
and stay open to reinventing it in every phase and being really well policed um, by my producers and by the people around me who I trust, you know, to have fresh eyes. And for your first few films here, you know, you worked with it with another director in a co-directing sort of situation, which I've, I've never experienced. Like, you know, I can see the advantages and sort of disadvantages, of course, that would come with that. But, um, you know, what, what did you find, you know, working with a co-director was like the biggest asset to, to having that, that, that second, you know, set of eyes, ears, that second brain, you know, as a, as a director? Well, there's a, there's a, as you know, sort of like a, a, an endless potential of workload for a director. Um, and it let us manage the workload. So, you know, that was probably the most obvious asset that, that we really felt. Um, but it requires this sort of telepathy. Yeah. Uh, and it requires, because, you know, we had a number system. It was very simple. If we were on set and, you know, we had a different feeling about something, we would very quickly say the number between 1 and 10 that, that expressed how, how intensely we felt. And whoever had the higher number, we would go. And we wouldn't, you know, that's it. Um, and it worked really well. But um, making That's sure right. that everyone else feels like they only need to talk to one of us, you know, to get their message across um, was hard uh, as yeah. things get really heated on, on set. So that that part of it was was a challenge. But um, but, you know, we'd we'd done theater together in, in college. We'd known each other for so long. Uh, we did have that sort of telepathy and, and um, that shorthand, uh, yeah, yeah, and a shorthand and just support, right? Like emotional support at the beginning yeah. and the end of the days, like on shoots like this, particularly Yellow Brick Road, which is um, just a, a really, really exhausting, uh, scary shoot where a lot there were a lot of events and then we got thrown off our location like three days into it and thought we were going home several times and were rescued by it. So it just had a lot of crazy stories that went Whereas on. Any, did you have any issues with injuries or illnesses or any of that kind of stuff? Uh, only minor. <laughs> we yeah. had, we had a, a, those, uh, those, uh, those ATVs, you see them driving around the movie. They were, there's this Canadian company actually that makes these, they're amphibious. We could actually take them into the water yeah. straight from the land. We didn't decide to go into that for insurance <laughs> purposes in the movie, but at, at one point there was a rollover of one of those things and we had, couple people with minor injuries i think that's the worst thing that happened mostly psychological injuries on that shoot. <laughs> yeah. and you know i'm curious when you're making a movie like this that that you know there's not a lot of humor in it there's a little bit early on but that goes pretty quick um and it's there's a lot of psychological you know people are losing their minds and they're turning on each other and trying not to and you know, I, I would feel like, f as a filmmaker, did that put a challenge or or a um, concept in place for you of like, well, I've got to make sure that for the cast and crew that you know when we finish our day that that everybody has a reprieve that they're not living in just gloom and and just sort of in this in this space for the whole production. Like, was that something you were kind of mindful of, or what was your approach to that? Yeah, particularly for the actors. I mean, if we had had the resources, we would have really paid attention to that equally for everyone. Um, we put ourselves in the worst scenario because we were literally living in the production house where the meals were being served downstairs and it was the hub for everything. And we would wake up right in the bad feeling. <laughs> and yeah. uh, But we put our actors in a nice set of cabins and they had like a hot tub and, you know, there, there was it, there was comfort 
And um, yeah, no one needed to be method about what we were doing. It was super important that, that it felt like fertile ground, you know, to be creative in, that we were going to have enough problems. So the actors to a person were really good at, like when they needed to staying in a certain headspace. Like I remember Clark being tied to, he gets tied to that tree and he was tied to that tree like all day because he just, you know, he didn't want to be, he wanted to stay, but like you could still talk to him and as Clark and, and get notes. Yeah. So they found yeah. that nice balance um, yeah. that, that worked really well. So, you know, we did some of that work, but they did a lot of that, a lot of that on their own. I was very appreciative that you never actually showed Sai catching and eating the chipmunk. I didn't need to see that. So I was thankful that you decided to leave that off screen. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, it's amazing to me that I've seen the movie now with quite a few different people, but most recently I showed it to my husband and, would, and he'd never seen it. And, and the Aaron's murder, which is the first kind of kill in the movie, always has the same effect where people are just like, they're, they're, it, they it just bowls you over because it's so brutal and so fast and over something so petty like a hat. And, you know, you you can see everybody's getting a little bit shaky because of this music. And the music is such an ongoing threat. It's just a sound. But what it's the fact that you don't know what it means or what it's what it promises, you know, is so constantly it's permeating. And then this this thing happens and you're like, oh, shit's going to hit the fan hardcore in this movie. And it's a shocking moment. Um and it's it's much more gruesome than anything that you've really done since in terms of 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 the effect. Like when he tears the leg off. I mean, I don't think you've done anything quite as gruesome as that since. But nope. were you were, was that was that the intent just to truly shock the audience at that point? You know, and really you know push that movie the, the push the meter forward that much more more than it yeah, happened. exactly. It's I, I the element of surprise like. I've definitely employed it differently in each movie. Um, whether in this case the gore is a, is a is a part of the reason for it, because we want people to get relaxed into a rhythm that it's going to be more of like a slow burn, you know, hand that rocks the cradle sort of experience yeah. where you might have to wait till the last twenty minutes for the yeah. for the shit to go down, and then be like, yeah, have exactly that reaction, like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now we're now we're singing a completely different song, and we've got to deal with this. And and it, it, it's its own challenge. I remember in the script, when when they divide into different stories for the last act, um, we were going to follow them one by one without intercutting. Uh, and of course, in editing, um, there were a lot of reasons to change our mind about that. But um, it, partly because you know what you say about the humor. Where do we release this tension? That sigh and live sequence is where we release that tension because. Their little drug trip is, yeah. you know, has something to, you know, it's it's just a different. It gets scary, obviously, at the end, but but it's a chance to to. Yeah, there's like there's that part where she goes, where he says, you know, can I kiss you? And she's like, no. Right. And I was like, <laughs> do I laugh here, or is he now going to do some horrible fucking thing to her? Like that. Right. Is, you know, yeah. Right. Right. It walks that line a little bit. Um, yeah. For sure. And we were, yeah, we were, we were playing around with that, but there's also things we shot out there. There's a. Something that didn't I didn't make the Blu-ray disc, but we shot this crazy sequence where Walter goes out alone uh, into the night, and, and this hand comes out behind this tree, and it's sort of the hand you see pulling Melissa away later, the hand of the usher. Like we were trying things that then we had to refocus the storytelling at the you know when we got into post. And it you know this is I think the kind of film where at the end of it the kind of person who needs total closure is not 
that you don't get it. You don't get a tidy yeah. ending here. You don't get all your questions answered, you know, and, um, but for you as the filmmaker, like, did you have answers to those questions or was that, was some of that, you know, stuff that you were like, I don't need to, I don't necessarily need to know that either. Like what was sort of your approach to that? It was a mix. The, the part that felt like mattered, um, to the arc of the story and specifically the Teddy's arc was that, you know, the sense of like, what would the end of any road ever be, but the sum of your choices along the way. And here you are. Um, and everyone else as at their own end, you know, that's the sum of their choices, but, but you really determined their fate when you went North and broke this, this, this group apart so that he ends up in, in hell, uh, or his personal hell, you know, w was the idea, but, but we still felt like there needed to be dream logic around the, the design and the machinations of that. Um, so, you know, for me, what I didn't want is a movie that where there was no ending to the road where I felt like that's the kind of ambiguity I like where we didn't make a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead we made a, like a choice um, that what, you know, it, it has its ambiguities, but it's also architecturally, it's a real choice. Like at the end where they started, um, at, at this theater where in the, in their, in their original coordinates were right in a sense. And, uh, you know, the guy behind the glass at the beginning is the, is the usher at the end and, and all these, these sort of ties that for me have some closure. That said, it's a super polarizing ending, right? Like I have my yeah. own mixed feelings about it just in the execution but um, I'm glad we just took a swing and, and made it and made a choice, you know. I mean, I think of too. There's that. Uh, this is going back a ways. I but that that guy in the theater who's who's such an asshole was such a fun little bit. <laughs> he's, just <laughs> such a he's just like he was just like a local kid. Yeah, he, he was on. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, I mean, because I feel like we've all met that guy, you know, working behind a counter somewhere or whatever, who's just like you know, he, the way he's gonna keep his shitty job enjoyable for him is just to be a dick. Um, right, it's a, it's a funny bit. Um, you know, I'm curious too, like with a film like this that does have a certain amount that's left into the interpretation of the audience, there is a lot of the information that you need there if you can find it. But, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is like. You know, if you try to classify the movie as a certain type of genre movie, do you think it's a supernatural film? I think of I think of it as a um yeah, but like demonically supernatural. Yeah, right. Not okay. a ghost story. Yeah. It's a it's a mindfuck movie. It belongs in that classification and it probably belongs in folk horror as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because it was like I was trying to think of that. I was like, sort of what, what sort of so, and folk horror was one I thought of, but that's that's a tough to define genre too because you've got yes. so many movies now that get thrown in. Like if there's a forest, people are good. Like it's folk horror. Um, right. Right. Um, you know, I kept thinking of you know, and I know this might seem like obvious, but it, it does belong somewhere around the school of something like Blair Witch for me, where where it's, you know, there is a sense of that the woods themselves are holding something in them that is evil that is that is wrong and, and that's the enemy it's not a you know a singular entity that's after them it's the right place. it's the place it's this almost like a cthulhu sort of mentality yeah of like the 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 evil of the earth i mean that is sort of where where we began and what um, made you decide to go with kind of the wizard of oz iconography and and, and stuff well 
I guess it started with the music. I, sometimes I think I was a band leader in the 1930s in a past life. <laughs> like I just, I, I'm interested in that sound that like the old Fred Astaire, you know, and like you say, like, what is, what is the music promising? And I listen to that music and I'm like, this is so beautiful, but it has such an obvious artifice. It's yeah. promising nothing at the end of the day. It's a sound, it's a beautiful sound and it's made yeah. with a lot of musicianship, but, um, but it's false in this other way. And it was a part of why it scared me, I think coming from this natural environment in this sort of uncanny way. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess it's sort of, well, I think it's also cause it doesn't belong, right. It's that class. It doesn't belong. Like, you know, a, a kid laughing, you know, that's your friend's kid is a sweet moment. But when you're in bed at night, and if you hear a kid laughing and you don't have a kid, well now it's not a cute thing. Now it's a scary thing. Like, it's right. that thing, right? Like you're in the woods, right. it's supposed to be quiet nature, and there's this big band music playing. It right. Doesn't, so, doesn't belong. right. So once I knew where the period of the music was from, um, that led me to uh, the story of this town. And we were looking at other towns, like um, there's a few other. There, there's a few. There's one in Alaska. I think there's one Roanoke. Stories about whole towns disappearing. Disappear, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we took some of those details. But I, you know, when I started imagining. Um, you know, uh, uh, coming out of the depression and, and what I knew about these towns on the, on the real outskirts that would have been like, um, you know, the kind of place we were in Northern New Hampshire, um, when they had nothing left and there was a, a you know, uh, that they would be watching this, you know, Wizard of Oz obsessively as people were at the time sort of to escape their own reality. And ultimately, you know, that escape in this case, I guess becomes literal that we don't, that we don't know why. Um, they they follow that that empty promise. Yeah, I mean you've got that that image of her like the scarecrow, and then of course you had yeah. that where her fucking jaw falls off, which was cute. But um, right, yeah. but that's well, always that... got me. The, the two the arms both ways of the scarecrow is like the symbol of chaos, right? So yeah, like, it's that, great. Those little pieces fit in, and then we had little Easter eggs that didn't even matter. Like Lee Wilkoff, who plays the usher, was at the time playing the wizard in in. Um, uh, Wicked in uh, I think Sanford's on the national tour so he'd been known for um, he's also the original Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors on Broadway oh wow that's great yeah that's awesome yeah it's funny because it's like there's that shot where you kind of they look over um, the uh, the deadfall and they see kind of the road the winding road and, it, and like I, I I'm guessing there's a bit of CGI enhancement for all of for that but like yeah Sometimes CGI enhancement like that to me is like, oh, it looks like CGI. But there was something about it just, again, gave it this artifice that made it feel eerie and uncomfortable. And, you yeah. know, it reminded me of that shot in, um, in Pet Cemetery, where, uh, back to Pet Cemetery, but where the, the deadfall glows. And there's yeah. never an explanation for that. There's no reason. It just gives it a, an eerie quality. Totally. That's great. <laughs> um. Is it a movie you think, you know, there there could be further stories around or do you think this is a one-off? Um, well, my wife has her own uh, feelings about this since I married Liv, the, the Barry girl from Millibrook Road. And right. um, <laughs> since she, you don't see her die, you know, she, she, she believes that there should be a movie, of course, about Liv. Um, yeah, coming back yeah. to kind of an sure. style thing, yeah. yeah. That would make Laura. That would make Laura very happy. I, 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 yeah. I don't think, 
I don't think there's another story here. I think, you know, I like the idea of like the new fad of spiritual sequels. <laughs> like, yeah. You yeah, take yeah. like the feeling or, or some kernel of the idea. And, I'd love and... to see like a graphic novel or something maybe that tells yeah. us more about things that happened around this place. And, I, you know, but, uh, you know, yeah, I get you. It would be, it's one of those stories that's like, you'd have to start answering questions you don't want to answer if you were to do another one. Yeah, or like to do a period piece to actually go back to the 30 or whatever, like to, you know, to do the ginger snaps thing or like, right. you know, I think we probably talked about all that stuff. But in the end, like, I don't know, it's just too many stories. Too many Have you ever seen stories. In the Mouth of Madness, the Carpenter film? Of course. Of course. That ending, that ending. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I was like, I wonder if that was an influence <laughs> or just a coincidence. Absolutely. We talked about yeah. that movie. Yep. It was Great. that and the other huge, it was, that's the other thing I didn't mention. We were talking about literary House of Leaves. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Everywhere. Oh my God. That Always. book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, best. yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. It's, um, it's a book. I, uh, it's a comfort food to me though. I, I've, uh, even though it's huge. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm super glad that, that people can pick up this nice pristine version of it now. Cause it's got all kinds of, cool making of stuff and it's uh I, I just a movie i think that uh i hope more and more people discover it i mean i'm i'm guessing you probably already know it has its a fair amount of fans i i don't know for sure but but uh yeah it's been cool over the years to discover that there's a particular among the community of horror authors novelists especially yeah. like that's how i got on like I've, I've come to know paul tremblay over the last several years and there's a whole group particularly of new england authors who really uh, gravitate towards it which has been cool and um yeah. yeah i get people come up to me at a festival with a copy in their hands who said like look i you know i saw this like stoned at a friend's house when i was 12 and i've never been the same will you sign it please yeah i think Great. it will be you know what pet cemetery was for me this movie will be for 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 some youngsters that see it so you know that's pretty cool <laughs> it's very cool it's very cool did you, you know, was it a movie when you finished it and put it out and started, you know, screening it for people? Did you see that it was working, that it was having the effect you had, you had hoped? I saw both things. Uh, I remember we, we saw, we screened it at Slamdance. Um, and I remember, you know, the credits don't have any music. There's just the sound of the forest, yeah. which is a really weird thing at a film festival. We very quickly discovered when like uh, people had had varied experiences because I was a very like I I was a sensitive like person coming into it and my skin got pretty thick because I remember reading the Netflix reviews and I would make myself read them because I think there's learning there but it was yeah. either like a total death threat or like a love letter you know like people yeah. some people hate. But isn't it always yeah, well, yeah, and you learn that there's yeah. a gift in that. You know, what yeah. you don't want is to make the, the two-and-a-half-star movie that everyone's already thinking about their grocery list on the way out the door, and that's not going to get you anywhere. You want to start a conversation? No. Yellowbrick Rope was a good way to start it. And uh, But, yeah, I had to really reckon with what it was because it, it got out further than we thought. We really didn't. Yeah, we, I mean, I've talked to all kinds of other genre filmmakers about it, and, and um I can tell you that most of the of the horror directors that that I know, uh, we all have talked about how scary it is, how eerie it is. It gets under your skin, you know. And and these are hardened horror guys who have watched, you know, the fucking crazy stuff, you know, that yeah, that uh, that people wouldn't dare watch. That you know, because I think it's you know, if you know horror, you know that it isn't gore and it isn't you know that's not the stuff that really gets under people's skin. That's not what's pervasively scary in a movie. Is not 
how many heads you chop off or it always has to do with atmosphere and you know and 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 sort of what you don't show and that's such an important part of creating suspense and, and yeah think, you know yeah we wanted to I see to, that i see that exorcist value in it in that way it's nothing like the exorcist but that value is in there right it's a value yes yeah no it's cool it's the moments that i always tell people coming up like you you want to find like um a moment that you know you've never seen that would that would that would shake you to see it in a movie um and and those are gold those are it's not just a jump scare it's it's something more you know in in, in which in the window is a certain scene with a oh i know it's scene it is in which in the window right and that's <laughs> yeah. that was the kernel that's the kernel of the entire movie like yeah. you have yeah. that it's gold you work forwards and backwards from there yeah um in yellow brick road yeah that uh, either the 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 aaron and daryl kill or, or really the the other one where the the great sound comes down you know from the sky and you know when we lose the audio to our movie mostly and they're plugging their ears and stumbling down a path you know that yeah. that's even now i look at that sequence and i'm like wow we really that really seems such a risk there. too because that like that could be silly if it didn't work yes it was you know, silly in the day. Going, ah, that was like, that was it was super silly if you could see it outside yeah. of the movie. That was me yelling boom and like everyone, you know, uh, pretending it's just yeah. as silly as it gets, but you know then you put it in and trust the story and uh, you know. So your works. next film was We Go On, which is a, a, a very different movie in, 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 in every way. Um and and had a very different it's just a very different tone and i mean i guess it, there's still a, a supernatural component but much ghostier this time um but there is the connection that clark freeman from yellow brick road is back and he's great uh very different character mm -hmm. um what was sort of the kernel for for we go on what was sort of the the thing that that made you want to tell this story well, we just made a short called Listen, My Children that went in an anthology um, that Chiller TV made back in the day called uh, The Five Senses of, of Fear. Um, and when we were pitching them shorts, uh, before we got to the one we actually made, I pitched them a short called We Go On that was just the central story to this that, that um, uh, regarding the, the airplane, the airport employee who... Um, you know, ends up the the idea of basically spoiler alert, uh, a ghost taking someone to their body. Um, that central set piece of We Go On was an isolated short film, but the conceit of putting out an ad with the reward money for proof of the afterlife felt like really fertile ground in a simple way. So I went back to that and started to imagine um, how we might build something out of that because I wanted to meet more candidates and then I wanted to to explore some things, you know, I've been exploring forever, um, as a, as a believer, um, as someone who, you know, when I was young, my mom was a hospice worker. So she was by just hundreds of deathbeds and, you know, saw, uh, incredible things. I, I grew up in, uh, in what I now understand to be an outlier scenario where I was a real believer, um, in the supernatural and remain so to some degree, but, um, I'm surrounded so you believe, by, you believe in an afterlife? I do. I believe in past lives, mm -hmm. I, you know, more of kind of a Buddhist sensibility, I, I suppose. Right. You know, I, I believe in sort of the intersection of what we think of as the afterlife with with quantum physics. And, you know, and I, I think there's an intersection with all this stuff. I don't pretend to know what, but um, I do believe in more. Um, and I'm but I'm rightfully surrounded by skeptics and I like the friction between them. And mm -hmm. um, I liked the idea of an adult man 
and his mom and like it's a relationship you don't normally see well i was just gonna say i love that annette o'toole you know just she's so fantastic in the movie because yeah she's so not that nurturing sweet kind of mom that we're so used to seeing in movies i mean she that's in her but she's much more of a badass than that. She's like, you know, she's got a gun in her purse and it's little, but she's got a gun in her purse. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? And she, but she has secrets and she's not a one dimensional mom character. And, no. you know, in horror, often the mother character is always, you know, just a, a potential victim and they're nice and she's sweet. And then, you know, um, you know, I like that, you know, not just in Annette O'Toole's performance, but in the writing that, that there's so many layers to who she is. Um, you know, and, and she's dealing with this son who's like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's what drew Annette, you know, that's sort of what kicked the whole thing off was that um, she was, the original plan was actually to have uh, Michael McKeon play the professor in the first segment. Um, and he had signed on to do it. And then he got um, Better Call Saul. And he wasn't available. So it was Annette at that point who opened up her phone and started calling people. And we wound up with John Glover. Who's amazing. Three days before we shot, John. He's amazing. I've always loved John Glover. He is such a fucking underrated actor. Absolutely. Like, he's, he's so tremendous. great. Yeah, and he's, he's so yeah great. he was great to work with. And Annette was like a dream. Like, I, I just so um, patient and, and, kind and and uh and and helpful and, and she was she uh she was like knitting everyone like <laughs> hats and stuff on the she's set. more she's like just... the, the sweet mom i described in her character than in <laughs> she's so she's absolutely the greatest um and there was one i did get to have one rehearsal in her house where michael mckeon came downstairs for lunch and you know i got to talk to michael mckeon about my love for clue which i checked that box off and <laughs> um, they're just they're the best family. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, John Glover was you know I I when I saw that he was in it, I got so excited because he's not in enough. I like I love him no. and I think he's yeah and he's but he's quite a prolific uh, like acting coach as well, isn't he? Yeah, I guess I've heard that. I I, yeah. I, I don't know. There was a little bit of a um, uh, a Smallville connection going yes. on on that because Annette had been on Smallville and Cassidy um who's only briefly yeah. and we go I read on, like but... a couple reviews where they were like clearly these directors are Smallville fans I was yeah. like that's probably not how this went yeah it really didn't um yeah. it was it was it was Laura it was my wife who got to Annette because Michael was on Broadway and she got a note under the stage door because she knew some people at the theater and so it came in that way but the Cassidy connection was 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 great too and it was pretty surreal to have then her playing Clark's mom in the flashback because they had recently lost their mother so there was a, an extra level of meaning to to the Freemans on this project too and I did write this part for Clark I mean it's it's an interesting role too because I feel like Clark's character is like if, if it wasn't such a carefully calculated or maybe not calculated, calibrated performance, the guy could be kind of annoying or kind of a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? It's like he's so neurotic and he's so obsessive. And, you know, he could be a character that an audience would find off-putting or just sort of, you know. So I think it's really to his credit that that that, ha that never happens. We, we do stay with him. We, we're with him on this journey. Um was that something that you and he talked a lot about was just how to how to find that right, you know, kind of alchemy of making sure that guy doesn't become just this head case? 
yeah, uh, I mean, it's most credit to, to, to Clark, but um, we made a few simple decisions. Like, um, like Clark is a very, uh, in life, exuberant, um, smiley person, but as Miles, he wasn't allowed to smile except for very, very few instances. But what felt important is that he always be leaning in. What's good yeah. about that character is he's also a seeker. I didn't even yeah. put my finger on this until I read the Rue Morgue thing, but uh, they, they mentioned in that that the two movies I made with Jesse are about people seeking out the supernatural. And since then, I've been writing about people more beset uh, upon by the supernatural. So that yeah. it was interesting to me. It wasn't conscious. But I think that's what saves him from just being the sad sack is that he is very good at at continuing a forward momentum through everything and he's not full of surrender um you know he pushes himself through so i think we're willing to follow it's always funny too i think when when someone else goes hey you know you did this and this and this and it did you ever notice that and i, I and, and you're like no but that's cool that you know that you did <laughs> like, yeah. you know, i think people think so often as a writer or filmmaker you intend uh, a lot of things that that maybe they're subconscious but that you you know i remember hearing a great interview with john carpenter where a very you know articulate intelligent journalist was asking him very intelligent and finally john just went you're way smarter than me i didn't think of any of that shit like i don't um <laughs> yeah it happens all the time to me yeah. all the time i get but i'll take credit for for all the things that i, I didn't think of yeah um <laughs> I also like the line where she was like, oh, Temecula. I was like, yeah, Temecula is scary. <laughs> um, That's right. Yeah. Um, and I think this film's unique, too, in that there's a little more humor in this one than quite a bit of, than, than most of your other work. There's there's definitely lighter touches. There's moments where we actually get to kind of laugh. You know, even John Glover, you know, even though he's not playing a comedic role, he, he he's a little bit kooky. So it, there, I, he made me smile quite a bit. Yeah. You know? Um but I was curious, you know, that moment where he gets in the car, is the suggestion there that he isn't entirely a phony? Yeah, the suggestion is whether if we believe him, I mean, which I do, uh, do that that he that he's invested in this theory. He just he was trying to force a piece in terms of being ready to prove it, um, you know, because he, he wanted the check. But um that yeah that the part of him who believes in it and does actually think legitimately study this was hoping it it would it would work this time but he wasn't yeah gonna count on i it. kept hoping he was going to come back um i think spinoff um yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in one of the other kind of major themes of the film that i noticed that was was there was definitely an, an aspect where the film is, has a lot about overcoming your fear overcoming you know that debilitating fear in your life of death of you know loss um you know was that something that was also kind of right at the forefront of the movie something you were trying to talk about and get into with this film yeah i mean i think it's 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 partly starting with that mission and that concept um and then really coming around to realizing that um the time we have here is you know, is, is what matters. And, and, you know, the, 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 even the meaning of the title kind of changes for me by the end, because it's really about how we live with our ghosts, how we, how we go on through our lives despite them and, and not always being, uh, having to answer the, the unknown caller when the unknown caller calls, like we can be, we can be here and it's okay. I mean, and I think on some level thematically that is a similar theme to yellow brick road right i mean it is it is. it is still about that thing of not forgetting 
to stay present and you know um yep. you know so that that's sort of yeah an interesting thematic connection there mm-hmm. um which in the window um uh i hadn't i hadn't seen which in the window till you i knew i was gonna be speaking with you and um uh, so I didn't read anything about it. I don't watch trailers anyway, so I just I had oh, no good. idea what to expect from it. But I had a very different idea from seeing like the the poster. That's all I saw because when I went to watch it, it showed that. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is going to be you know, a witch movie, and that's not really what it was at all. No, it um, wasn't called that when we shot it. I was very oh, reluctant really? to put witch in the title. Yeah. What was it called originally? The Vermont House. I think that's a more appropriate name, actually. Um, yeah. which in the window, you know, I guess, I don't know. It, I, I can see why it, for sales purposes, they would want to call it that, but, um, you know, I, this movie barely feels like a horror movie to me. It's, it's like, it's pretty intimate drama, you know, a lot of the time. I mean, I was really like the sensibilities of it. There's some scary shit for sure, but so much of the time I was kind of just so invested in the story of this man and his son and, and you know what that journey was and but you know it's interesting right at the beginning when the mother's talking about all these things that are sort of stressing her out you know you're, you're a parent right yes do you, are, were those things that that you've heard at your in your own household that found their way into the script you know about what they see on the yeah. internet on, on using screens too much and all that kind of stuff yeah for sure and we shot that one scene after the rest of the movie months later um and trump had just been elected so i was full of feelings right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah. yeah um you know and and you know there's that moment like where it's a subtle thing but it's a great little horror trope it, it reminds me of you've seen the changeling right mm-hmm. Scott. of course that part where finn and simon are talking in the hall and the witch is in is in the glass reflected in the glass so many people probably won't even notice that the first time they see the movie. But I love little things like that where, you know, if you go back and see another time, you'll catch that her presence is kind of felt throughout the film. Um, but we really don't see her that much. You know what I mean? She's not, uh, were, were you, was that, did you want us more to just feel her presence rather than have a lot of witch imagery? Was that kind of what you were? Well, it's interesting. Story? The game, the game we were playing, um, uh, plays differently in theaters than at home because she's hidden uh, multiple times throughout the first act in subtle ways in the background. And so when you're in a theater, sometimes like 15% of people will see it, but there's yep. this little like whispered tense thing that happens where everyone else is wondering what it is. And uh, I liked the feeling of that. I wanted people to be leaning into it. It was part of why we did like the magic eye too. I wanted to give a sense of like, it's just going to give you a chance to look around and see, but we're not going to give you the score or the stingers every time we're going to let you have your experience and not hold your hand necessarily through it. So, um, you know, she's there probably more times than most people know. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, really from the, from the very beginning over the, like where my director card is when they pull up to the house, she's in the window there and okay. um, several other times. Um, so that felt like, um, my husband at one that. point pointed her out and went, look, and I didn't catch it. And he was like, rewind. I was like, I'm not, I don't, I hate doing that. I'm not rewinding, but I'm exactly. Rewinding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, you push forward and, um, you see what you see next time if you watch it again. But and I'm, yeah, I'm kind of cool with that, but I, yeah. I was more interested in, yeah. in the slow burn and building the dread, like making the kind of haunted house movie that interested me. And I got very interested in just their 
not just their relationship, but their experience of the fun of being like for a while, they're sort of enjoying it to the point yeah. where, uh, to the point where they're going to approach her in that hallway. And, and, you know, some of the set pieces are, are built like around that, that. That scene, Andy is so unique because you never see that in a horror movie. At no point can I ever think of in a horror movie of a scene where the father and son are like, Oh, there's the evil thing. Let's walk up to her. Like that doesn't ever happen. They scream and they run away or, or more, more often the kid sees it runs and gets dad. They come back and she's gone or something like that. Right. The fact that, they just walk up to the this witch, this ghost witch, and I was like, "Wow, you actually did a new." I've never seen this ghost trope. This is a new one, so bravo. <laughs> yeah, well, that that for me is that's it's a whole lot less gory, but that's the leg rip in this movie because it 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 breaks down all those expectations. Okay, we're not going to have one person believing and the other person doubting them. We're yeah. gonna have a share. We can skip over all that junk, right? Um, I get excited about that sort of propulsive, like, what now? Like, you know, and then the, the it's a movie where the rhythm really changes again after establishing that slow burn. It, it, it hits some pretty fast strides from that point. Now, spoiler warning, and if someone hasn't gathered already by now that we're giving spoilers, they should yes. be listening to this and they're, they're a slow poke. Um, but uh, <laughs> the the part that got me and my spouse and I were like, oh, fuck off, <laughs> was the boy beside him in the phone call. Yeah. And, and I was just like, oh, no. Like, as soon as I realized what you were doing there, I was like, oh, God, he's, it's not him. Um, but also, it's like, you know, that moment was scary. But also, it's like around that time in the film where I started to be like, what does she really want? Like, what is her objective? Because she isn't just an evil malevolent force. There's something more to her. Um, do you think in the end she's a sympathetic character? No. I think she wants him to stay. You know, that that to me was the flip, right? It's not, it's not the ghost who wants you to leave. It's the ghost who wants you to stay because in the kind of unique rules of this movie, it's kind of a table for one at this haunting. And if he takes the, the seat, she can leave. Um, and that's um i decided i'm believe me i'm all about um strong motivations um but i have to admit in the last couple of movies i've been interested in that evil the, the bad that that we can't explain the 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 you know that the way i put it and the reason there's a scene you're talking about where the father and son are discussing what the kids saw on the internet and he saw a beheading video you know on on some news cycle and and like when i picture my kid my kids are younger than that now but if when i picture them stumbling on something like that on the internet the feeling i get inside is lydia that's her um right. and that for me that was the fruit this time around um and what gave me um because you know i think that some of the people who are maybe less into my work than others you know that would probably be a frustration is that i'm not always going around paying attention to the arc of the bad guy. I'm, I'm only servicing the arc of my main characters. I'm interested in what I get out of that. What, what's, what's useful for that arc is there, and what's not is sometimes veiled because that personally appeals to me and is scary. Um, so everything was in service to Simon's journey and, and, and what he comes to. And, you know, and the third act is very much about subverting 
what frustrates me about third acts and ghost stories, which is that you have to have this battle. And I always stop believing like more than half of them fall apart for me because you've got to do battle with a ghost. And it's just like, no, that's not, I'm scared of it because I can't. Um, So how does he face this thing and and how does he make an active choice um, that serves for me as a climax, but doesn't fall into all those trappings, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I just sort of, Maybe sympathetic wasn't the right word, but I, I, it was understandable to me what she's trying to do, because she doesn't want to be stuck there either. So you know, she's it's selfish, but it's like, I get it? I get why she yeah. get this guy so she can get the hell out of there, and move on, whatever. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I also thought you know that scene that you're talking about in the barn where they're talking about him seeing the decapitation. You know, I, that was such an interesting thing for me because. It's something I've always been confused about is like, you know, I've and I see even with my my some of my friends with their kids. I don't have kids, but but um that they'll freak out if one of their kids sees, you know, a, a naked person, but their kids can play the most gory, horrible, violent video games and watch the craziest movies. And <laughs> you know, which is very American, North American, you know, whereas like I find, you know, if you look at European cinema like much more comfortable with sex and sexuality and and, and yeah. their rating system is much more concerned with violence. That makes more sense to me. You know, if I was a parent, I don't think I would be a, that upset if my kid looked up a naked person on the internet. That kind of curiosity to me is totally healthy and makes sense. Um, if my kid's looking up real life, you know, snuff videos, that's a concern. <laughs> um, yes. For you as a parent, was that something you were trying to kind of talk about in that moment? Was, was your own feelings on that on that subject? Yeah, I grew up with a bit of the opposite with a, a parents who were making sure that the, there wasn't sex in the movie and otherwise I could watch the horror movie. And, and I, I do think that's a little bit backwards to how I feel. But I also you know, it's how I am in life is I'm a complete wimp when it comes to actual violence. Like I remember I used to work at the discovery network in LA and they would do these stupid ass shows that were like, it would be like the top 10 train accidents or something. And, you know, so they would cut, they would always cut right before like the person get hit, gets hit by the train, but they had the footage in the editing bay. And I remember someone called me in one day and was like, Hey, look at this. Like it was some joke seeing this woman getting killed by this train. And that to me is like, I literally, if I see something like that, I take it to my grave. I can't, like, it's, the weight of it is intense. Whereas the extreme as horror can get, if I know that it's fiction, you know, there's a Grand Canyon between those things, right? One is art made by friends in a safe place, hopefully, and the other's violent. So, um, you know, I'm trying to teach my kids what the line there is, because of course I want to show them all the horror movies, you know, they're just getting, they're like seven and six now, so not yet. Yeah, that's a fun age, though, they're getting right to that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're like... like Dark Crystal and... Right, we look Beetlejuice and and Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very cool. I showed my niece um, uh, for Halloween, uh, Monster Squad, Yes. And she was like a little scared, but she 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 got it. She was having fun with it, and I was like, okay, she's ready. Like, because I remember yeah. trying to show her, I think it was Labyrinth a couple years prior, and it was too scary for her. But that there's some old '80s kids movies that just you know kids now don't seem to be prepped for. I don't know what it is. Like, no. let alone never ending the story. Gate. Remember that one? Oh my god, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, that was rated PG. <laughs> like, yeah, all those movies were rated. I mean, you know, Gremlins is PG. They, I know they, they have that old Santa Claus monologue. You can't Which do that. Which is as dark as any R-rated movie. Yeah, no kidding. 
Like I always remember that you know I think every, every it's been talked about so many times now but like what is more traumatizing than the horse dying in never ending story that movie single-handedly traumatized <laughs> you know like millions of kids um, I did show them that one recently oh, the, God. I mean I just warned them I like I was you know the I we have this whole thing cuz they know we work in movies so it's like yeah. whenever someone's dying on screen in fiction it's we're like real. right after their death is like he's now getting a sandwich at the yeah. crafty table Yeah you're like sandwich. that horse is getting fed all the hay it wants. Horse and... sandwiches. Oh, yeah. he's crafty. He's fine. Because <laughs> I also feel like that horse death goes on forever. It's like <laughs> ten minutes of oh god, and this horse going. <laughs> and it's just it's yeah. Wolfgang Peterson, thanks for that. Um, yeah. Um, is Green Peppers a real restaurant? Yeah, that's where I would have pizza as a college student. It was. Uh, right there i can't believe it every time i see it in the movie i'm like wow there it is yeah they let us shoot in there they were um that was sort of the theory of that movie the whole production plan because no one shoots in vermont because there's no right. tax incentive but i we had the school and the school owned the house and alex he he's a professor at middlebury of theater which is why you don't see him in other things because he's there full-time teaching and um it was it was like if you find me the house, I want to write a movie around it. So I actually knew that house before I wrote the movie. Oh, okay. Which is an amazing advantage that I'll probably yeah, no never kidding. have again. I mean, I just when I saw that restaurant and the sign and stuff, it looked like such a cute restaurant. I was like, I hope that's a real place. Um, uh, that line where he says something, it's like I'm paraphrasing. He says, "Why should I have a perfect thing when I'll just find a way to wreck it?" That's such mm. a a sad sort of tragic line um you know and don't you think in the end that character is sort of a tragic character that his whole arc is sort of pretty tragic yeah i think he never has a real chance to to build what he's building and he's yeah. building it anyway and he knows exactly why he's in this doomed situation and you know the one time he has a chance for catharsis to express it in that scene he's talking to her and he doesn't know it yeah. So yeah, I think it's very, very sad. I tried to save him in early drafts. I really did. It, the movie made me sad. Um, yeah, he doesn't deserve the fate he gets, right? I mean, it's one of those no. characters where like he doesn't deserve this. <laughs> no, but there is an there is a lift at the end for me. Like, yeah. well, what's interesting about Witch in the Window is I find that at least for most people, they do get a click at the end that the ending lands. But yeah. half of the people who the who the ending works for will tell you it's a down ending, and the other half will say it's an up. Um, and I love that because I got you know, more of an up from it. The idea good. That, yeah. that they're that they're together, that they're still connected, that they're you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that little knocking response at the very end didn't yeah. come in till we didn't. Th that's not in the script. That was like a sound design, like the last thing that oh, happened. Oh really? was just this yeah it was oh. just in it and it put the period on the sentence and it was like that's okay. funny now because i kind of can't imagine it not being there i know same yeah. yeah 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 um you know and it's it's interesting to me that in both this film and then again in the harbinger that you use the likeness of a of a young boy as the manipulation of some evil thing you know what is it is that is that for you just sort of you know that the classics sort of that depiction of innocence being manipulated by by a malevolent force yeah i mean i mean because they're even that, similar looking little boys <laughs> like they are a bit aren't they yeah i feel like we're, it's we're just gonna end up back at pet cemetery but right um, for better or for worse <laughs> that's what i yeah. exactly that's what i grew up on and 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 not knowing whether 
to trust him, you know, like really in the Harbinger, he's built up as the Visker, the Victor Pascal, right? He's like yes. the angel yeah, who looks terrible, but is, is trying to help you. And I'm, in, I'm interested in that character too, but I was thinking of Victor Pascal. Pascal's a great character. Yeah. I love great it. Great yeah. Character. Great performance too, by that actor in that film. It is. And so ballsy how they cut off like her waving goodbye in the driveway to the shot of like the brains hanging out of his head. Like yeah. that cut is so harsh. And they they just go for it like that the, bubble, line the too, bubbling brains. It's crazy where uh, she says to the driver says something to the to the wife when he drops her off and she's like I'm sure everything's gonna be okay and he's like I'm not and that's the last time we see him. It's like, <laughs> that's right. Wow. That's right. They just went for it. Um. Uh. So with the witch in the window, like you know, I'm guessing for a film like this, you're gonna have two types of audience reactions. You're going to have the people who appreciate the nuance and the intimacy and the quiet moments with the scares. And then you're going to have those guys who are like, oh, it's a pussy horror movie. It's not scary enough. It's not gory enough. Did you get that kind of reaction to it? Yeah, I guess when it got out finally, like on Shudder and, and was in the mainstream, it played well at festivals. Um, I've generally had the sense, and maybe I'm inventing this for myself, but or maybe I'm just depending too much on the letterbox scores. But I think they've been well better received each time, uh, the films. Um, you know, Yellow Brick Road, the most polarizing by far, 2.5 on Letterboxd. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Hey, you know, that's what happens. You get all those half-star reviews, you know, whereas, like, we go on, they decided it was a three. And, and I'm going to start a campaign to get that rating up. That's bullshit. Please do. That would be yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty low. But it seems like each time, it, I'm, I'm always scared. By the time I release it, I'm like absolutely sure I'm going to be rejected for all sorts of reasons. For <laughs> right. the Harbinger, it was just for daring to do COVID, right? Yeah. Um, positive that it was just going to be complete backlash. It's and, too and soon, yeah. It's right. too soon, right? Yeah, but uh, but it, it's been so far, you know, pleasant surprises all around. And which in the window, I feel like I feel good about these last two because i feel like i'm for me i'm sticking the ending better i'm sticking the well, landing i should say i feel like i can see you know and having watched all your films now in a fairly you know kind of in order in a fairly you know, like sort of tight time frame mm -hmm. you get you know one of the benefits and you know that's, that's one of the fun things about doing this show when i when i'm gonna meet with the and speak with the director is like you get to see certain directors starting to kind of not find their voice because I think you had it right from the get-go but but nail down certain aspects of your approach and your style and and your signature and to the point where like I think now like if I were to watch a movie that you made I'd know it was your film pretty quickly I'd be able to hmm. there's a stylistic quality of a feeling and an energy in your work that would tell me oh this is Andy's movie I and I think that that's important for a filmmaker to have that that's cool um and the Harbinger, um, I was so pumped that someone was finally going to tackle the pandemic head on in a horror movie. I was so confused reading about so many movies that came out after the pandemic where directors and writers were like, oh, well, it's too real for people. It's just depressing. It's too." I was like, hold on a minute. There's this one fucking communal experience that everyone has that we all can tap into and Dude. no one wants to talk about this. I just it's didn't understand saying. that. It's like, what do we look for? Like a way to relate to as many people as possible. And, and like, finally, yeah, there's something that's not regional, doesn't have to do with anyone's war or anyone's, like, it's something we all have. 
like we played it differently depending on where we were but like we all you know we and it was it is it's been so satisfying to like go over i was just in sheffield and like they're having the same experience you know that they did in telluride colorado they're they're recognizing the same cues and like yeah how can you resist that yeah i mean i think you know and it was I, i read in your in your room org interview that like you know you just you had no hesitation about that you know what i mean and i think that's you know, I, I, I'm right there with you. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't get that hesitation to touch it, to, you know, that thing of like, oh, well, it's too soon. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, it's, it's, if it's supposed to be, if film and art is supposed to help create a catharsis, why do you have to wait to help? Especially in that? horror. Especially in horror. Especially where you horror, have, exactly. You have that, I can tell that you cushion. George Romero never would have said, oh, it's too soon when he was, you know, like his films, which tackled a lot of political and philosophical things yeah. head on, like George, you know, would never have said, oh, it's too soon. Like I just, yeah, and I was so pumped to see, you know, that you were making a movie, but then I'm going to be careful because the film's not out yet. But, um, you know, how did you decide on the kind of, like, did you decide I want to make a horror film uh, that takes place during the pandemic? Did that come first or did the, the sort of kernel of the story come first and you decided to set it in that time? I mean, they came a little bit together, but I definitely right. had the, like I wanted to work in nightmares for a while. I wanted to go back to demonic, um, like where I think of as the Yellow Brick Road territory, having learned some more things and 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 visit that realm again. Um, and for a while, I've been trying to th- I've been thinking of a story where people are pulled out of like pulled from existence. Um, because that skips over a lot of crap that I don't like to deal with as a writer, like detectives and <laughs> yeah. search parties and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. like it's kind of a technical, simple way to think no. of that. Yeah. It's, it's, well, that's terrifying. what it fits so nicely in with the existential dread of the time that I was like, okay, yeah. the dread, the dread is the, is, is, is the fuel and, and like, but, but this mythology could exist, I think outside of the time. It's just like any theme. You, you pick a World War II story because something about the, you know, the, what's going on at that time elevates the themes sure. and, and yeah. serves the story. So I thought of it that way. And, um, and yeah, it was clearly working through my own stuff as well. I was having nightmares at the time, which is unusual. And, um, it, it all it mostly came down in one night though um the 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 I, this more than any other story i've done has an architecture to it that was very clear it was almost like a math equation where the ending was always set um and never changed because it was just the result um this thing about hope in the face of hopelessness hope for no other reason than because we need to do it and it's what we do yeah um that's what i was feeling at the time you know, and I thought it was really, I was pleased that you didn't get lured into the trappings of the politics of it all. Like, there's that neighbor lady who's, you know, I think it was good to represent that. And I didn't, didn't even dislike her because, you know, you didn't sort of make her just like this ranting, raving, shallow, you know, one-way thing. There's a, there's a, I can't remember exactly what she says now, I don't want to spoil it anyway, but there is a moment that you where you allow her some humanity as well, where we see that she's a person too, and... You know, she's yeah. not, but, uh, I thought it was good that it doesn't become, you know, a, a, the pandemic is the backdrop of this movie, but it's, it's not about the pandemic, right? It, the pandemic, no. you know, so that's, yeah. No, no, I, I, yeah, I allowed myself crystal, the neighbor. I think of her as a grace note and that's right. as far as I went. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And it's like, it's funny too. You're watching this movie and it's things like, 
staying six six feet away from people, wiping down groceries, a hug between Mavis and Monique feels forbidden. And that feels so alien to me. And it was only like a year ago that that was, you know, or two years ago that that was our reality. It's yeah. so strange to watch it in a film now, though, and see how alien it already feels again. It's such an interesting experience for me because no one's putting it in films that I was watching your movie and going, oh, wow, watching people, these rituals that we all participated in now feel alien so quickly when they were sort of our lives, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. It's a... I think we shelved those things more than processed them. I think that's why yeah. it's interesting to me to see it now because people are like processing it and realize they just put it away. Um, and to have it brought back, you know, and not not everyone is, is happy to feel those feelings again. But um, it's also important to me. That's why, you know, there's a whole scene in the beginning where, yes, they're wiping down their groceries, but they never talk about wiping down their groceries. Yeah, they're telling they're a story about a runaway sausage cart. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's just it's funny that that hug, you know, it feels so it almost feels romantic or something. It feels so because the the, the risk, the, the 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 pressure around that decision to embrace each other you know, feel so, uh, there's, there's, there's a reality behind that decision that, you know, we don't have now. Now people are much more comfortable to embrace and hug friends and whatever, but, but the relationship between those two women is quite, you know, a, a, a kind of a lovely part of the story, that friendship that is so, you know, they're so, um, I don't know, they, they show up for each other, uh, in, in a way that I thought was really kind of touching and, and, and not super typical of genre filmmaking. Um, you know, was it was that something for you as as a writer where you said, you know, I want to kind of create these two women that that will will show up for each other and, and not have the like you talked about. There's no friction here. There isn't conflict. They don't have issues with each other. They love each other. And so the story is about, you know, them being taken away from each other. Yes. Yeah, that was that was the idea that 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 they couldn't feel doomed. We had to have, you know, she yeah. is the representation of hope in the, in the movie. So, like, we, you know, Emily Davis, who plays Mavis, is, like, pretty amazing at being wrecked. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. She, you know, she's wrecked right yeah. from the start. And she's, you yeah. know, it, she's, she's just one of those actors who has complete access and goes there in a very raw way. So we needed to bring in someone who would really buoy the situation and, 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 and help her ground it and make you feel like, okay, they're going to work through this. These are emotionally intelligent, you know, sensitive, wise people. Um, and that's sort of my theory overall is like I like putting – those are the people I like putting through the machinations of horror because that's where the friction is, you know. And if we if we get to know them on that level and hopefully relate to them on that level, it's, it's you know, it's worth the long game. Um, in this case, the long game being – that we're going to listen to Mavis tell us about her nightmares um, yeah. in the scene where we're watching her. And it, it might feel like, oh, we're not ever going to go into dreams. This is like a play. Um, but really, we're not going there because we're hardwired to Monique. And when she goes there, we go with her. Um, so that, you know, hopefully feels like a nice surprise. But also just the experience of seeing, sitting with them in the room, seeing how afraid she is. I always talk about the scene in Mulholland Drive in the diner where the, the man describes his nightmare of the, the man behind the dumpster outside before we go out. And it's all about seeing how scared he is Yeah. before we go. It, it builds yeah. up tension in a really cool way. I don't want to like spoil it, but there's this scene where she describes a certain dream where she has, where she has like dies in her own dream. And, and it, we don't see it. It's just her telling us it. And I was freaked out. 
And I was yeah. like, because it's just, I've never had a dream like that. And there's, I think there's a kind of a, an idea that, that in our dreams, we never see our own deaths because it would be too traumatizing. So our minds kind of, and, and this woman doesn't have that part of the brain protecting her. And that was such a scary idea to me. And, and, and the specifics of what she describes, again, I don't want to spoil it, but, but that, that was a great sequence to me where I'm like, wow, you know, you've created a scare here with a character just describing a dream. That's an interesting way to go about that, especially because I think when people think of movies that dream with kind of deal with dream, kind of going into dreams, whether it's Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, any number of movies where we do that, they're usually very surreal and very crazy, right? And and yeah. I felt like you you didn't take that approach here, that dreams, they had they had elements of surrealism to them, but they were a little more grounded than I think what people are used to. And so yeah. is that something you, you, you set out to do? Go, I want to be a little bit, I want to go a little more different here than, than they do in, in other movies when they depict this stuff. Yeah. Well, in a logical sense, we knew the situation we were in was a little sticky because we needed something safe. Right. Um, we, uh, we were kind of keeping it all in New York and it was great because all the new, the theater actors were on the ground and, and ready to work and not in the theater. Um, so all these people are stage actors. Like but, were you shooting this when all the, the, stuff was going on in terms of all that you know the covid people on set and checking people. oh yeah. yeah yeah we had just barely got the vaccine only teachers were getting it so no one had okay. the vaccine we were okay. testing in the mornings we were air filters you know louder than everything we were double masked all of it um so yeah we had that 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 vibe on the set for sure um part of it was like we i i couldn't make a chamber horror piece i couldn't do something in the dirt right because i'd just done witch in the window and it was already a chamber piece so we actually needed more scope um, but we had to find it in a careful way so we found this um theater that was shuttered in binghamton new york uh, where we could build that apartment um, on their second floor and they had this old decrepit art uh, opera house from the 20s that they also owned set for demolition and had all these amazing textures i mean it was a it was a cold as a freezer and just dangerous and strange and I ended up building all the nightmare sequences kind of rewriting the script for the powerpoints of this building um, and we always wanted it to feel grounded because we didn't want to telegraph when we were there we didn't change anything about the if Monique doesn't know she's in a dream we don't change anything about the design of the shots uh, anything at all that was sort of our rule so it's back to Jacob's Ladder really that was the tonal touchstone um, that is a grounded dreamy horror movie with a warm protagonist moving through a cold world um i really thought about that a lot um you know and it, it's you've got a a a villain here that 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 like jason or freddie has a mask and has a you know a design that, that could become sort of iconic or in this case it's the the plague doctor kind of visage and um you know but it's it's sort of clear to me why you would choose that that particular look based on the, the the time this movie takes place and stuff but you know on some level and i might be doing that thing i talked about earlier where i'm over intellectualizing something but the villain of the movie almost seems kind of representative of some of the ugliness we saw in people during the pandemic to me that that some of the tropes of what how he works and functions and what he's about kind of feels like some of the ugly side we saw in some people you know, that, that, that behaved certain ways or said certain things during the pandemic. Is that, am I on point at all there? Or is that, am I, is that lofty? <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely not. I think, I think, you know, what we learned from the, the Zoom demonologist, uh, my wife in the movie, when my wife and kids pop up halfway through this movie, you know, she, she's like, 
this is the this is the form he chooses because it's he it's going for our weakness and we had a collective conscious weakness and an isolation and for me it was about um i think we all realized in the hardest way that the fabric of our identities is based in our relationships and our connections to one another and when we're deprived of the opportunity to go help each other or to yes apply common sense and science to a problem you know rather than making it harder and making it worse all of those things when we're in that place we're vulnerable and so he's going to choose something that that strikes to that vulnerability if he's trying to break us down so you know i knew on one level that we did want to evolve it beyond the classic image and and we worked to create what we felt was a distinct design but i you know if I think he were ever to reappear in the world or in another story, I think he would choose a different form. Uh, I think that would be the fun um, because we would be in a different place going through something new and there would be something else to sort of get under the skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, I mean, it's kind of, um, somebody asked me uh, that, that is excited to see the film and I, and I said, well, I'm not going to tell you anything and you have to wait to see it. And they said, well, what would you compare it to? And I said, ah, like, maybe totally something like the Babadook had a, a similar vibe to me um, mm-hmm. in that it's so much, there's a monster, but you're, you're really more dialed into the people than you are. You know, when I watch Jason and Fred and those guys, I'm kind of more dialed into those guys. But in this movie, it's really about the, this woman, you know, this Monique character. You're, it's her story. It's her journey. And, mm-hmm. But I'm curious, without spoiling anything, do you think the ending of this film is hopeful um yes with no evidence that it should be and that's the point yeah i mean the yes i think it's i i I think um i think that most people seem to get a you know i've i've it's funny because i'm an optimist i swear um but i keep reading certain reviews will come out and be like this this is like a nihilistic I don't get that from your work at all. Movie. And yeah. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't feel that. No, I'm not I hopeless. Work at all. No. But, um, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a primal scream that came out at a sensitive moment that I felt like the catharsis of that primal scream could be shared and related to. Um, but I do think there's a reason for hope at the end. I that was Otherwise the vibe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't end it the way, you know, I would have ended it uh, a few minutes earlier. Yeah. That was the vibe I got from that editing was like, you yeah. know, and I think that's funny that, you know, um, your films go to dark places and bad things happen to good people, but I don't think anyone could ever say that any of your work is mean spirited. There's nothing, you never seem to be relishing, tormenting your characters or, you know, exposing them in ways there's no, you know, have sexual violence and things like that in your right. films. You, no. I, I just, I think that's such a, I, don't know, I call bullshit on anyone that says that about your work, that, that it's nihilistic. I appreciate it. I, I, um, I, I don't want to be that. No. Uh, well, um, the film is coming out, what, December? December 1st, in the, at least in the U.S. I'm going to try and yeah. get clarification on Canada, but they're doing... Um, yeah, limited theatrical and and uh, and streaming uh, December first, and then it should be following around the world. Hopefully, not too far behind. Because it, I, I, if nothing else, it is definitely a festive Christmas time type of movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is snowy. It is. It shouldn't um, be snowy. It should be. It should. It's supposed to take place sort of in the spring, but there was. Snow, oh really? So we were we were just like, all right, it's well, snowing. It. Yeah. And now yeah. the snow is like you know a part of the movie. 
Well, I think it's one of those movies that can do what really great horror movies do, which is give everyone a collective sigh and a chance to kind of remember something and work through it and talk about it. And so, you know, I think it's, uh, I think the film is great and I hope everybody, you know, will, will get a chance to kind of remember that it wasn't that long ago we were all kind of in this thing together and that you know i think it's important that you're that you talked about it here with this film and, and also gave horror fans a new villain to get excited about because uh he's he's great he's a he's a super creepy uh and he's mischievous right he's like he, he's he's got tricks up his sleeve so yes he gets to wear a lot of faces and a lot of voices since he he's the designer of dreams and it's harder it was, doing uh, this when i can't talk about specifics yes <laughs> because <laughs> well, you know on the show we go like it's retrospective we go through people's careers so spoilers aren't usually an issue but like here there's all these things i want to ask i'm like no i can't ask that i can't ask that but anyway i i think everybody's really you know i think i i think and i don't think this is just a movie for horror fans i think that this film is is much more open to a wider audience of just anyone who likes something that's you know is it it's dark and it's scary at times but it's a it's a tremendously thoughtful movie so um thank you you know uh, i I'm, i really hope that uh it finds an audience nice and quickly. Um, do you have anything kind of uh, that you're working on now or something coming up that you can mention? Um, I, I have a lot of irons and fires. There's there's good signs that this has been the sort of bridge builder I hoped it would be because I'm, I'm just looking to... Uh, uh, I am looking to work under more structure and, and with a bit more resources. I've been on the micro-budget level for four films. It's been great. But um, I, I feel like as a director particularly, there's a ceiling that you start to hit where it's like, yes. okay, if I'm shooting everything in 14 days, I'm never going to get yeah. quite what's in my head on the yeah. screen. And, and um, I think, you know, I, I think you would still recognize my work by what you said, but you'd also be surprised by some of the scripts I haven't shot because they're in a different, you know, I've got like a, a horror comedy voodoo thing in high school that's super bloody and fun and mostly just a horror comedy. I've got my take on a slasher. Um, oh, I'd love of, to see you do a slasher. I would love to see what that would look like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. hoping to do that. But there's, there's this cosmic horror thing that we were supposed to be shooting that summer um, that now is in early development. Uh, it's called Walk With Me Into the Darkness. Uh, it takes place during a solar flare. Um, cool. and it's, yeah, it's a sort of one night adventure and like a little coming of age story at the center. And, um, I'm really, my heart's in all of them. I've got seven scripts, literally. Um, there's a lot of writing to do during, during that time on the ground. So I feel, uh, in a good position, but also too jaded to mention anything too specifically. <laughs> of course. Very when jaded. you have something nailed down, will you come back and tell us about it? Yeah, I would love to. Okay, because I got to tell you, like, ever since I saw Yellow Brick Road, I was like, I keep my eye on this dude. And uh, I'm glad I have been, because I, I, I think your work is great. I'm a big fan. Thank you. This has been, I mean, definitely easily one of my favorite discussions I've gotten to have, you know, with anyone about the work. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that you bring to it. Um, it's very cool. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Justin Beam. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing that you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. 
You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, on Instagram by searching one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. So post, comment, share, like, but don't forget, there's still no substitute for good old-fashioned word of mouth. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>